Who's excited to talk about grief today? I'll be honest with you. I talk about grief all the time. And church is where I go to take a break from the grief of the world, not dive headfirst into it. So today, I know I've been billed as a grief expert, but we're actually going to talk about hope. I firmly believe that hope is often misconstrued. It's viewed as something light and cheerful and positive, a sugary, sweet, after-school special, feel-good kind of a thing. And I actually think that's wrong. Through my experiences with grief, I've come to view hope as something much more powerful than that. Something strong enough to make living with truly devastating losses possible. I know I am here today because of hope. This is my mom. Her name is Lisa. She had an unshakable faith that she shared generously with her children. She remains one of the kindest people I've ever encountered. When you crossed the threshold into my childhood home, you instantly became one of hers. My friends were her kids. The neighbor kid down the road was her kid. The kid who never sat still in Sunday school was definitely her kid. She was just that kind of mom. A woman who believed that if you lived by the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, everything in life would work out just fine. I joined her in this belief system, and it served me well, until one day it didn't. Early on, my childhood was quite charmed, with two happily married parents who loved me, teachers who mostly adored me, and a little sister who drove me crazy, the way younger siblings always do. And then one day, everything fell apart. My mom got sick, and she just never got better. It took years for doctors to land on a firm diagnosis, and we would ultimately learn my previously healthy mother had multiple sclerosis. By the time she was diagnosed, the disease had done permanent irreparable damage to her brain. I was 13 and suddenly became both child and caretaker. And it was the 90s, so no one was talking to me about my feelings or about how challenging it was to care for a sick parent. So I turned to the only thing I felt I could rely on at the time, success. I was class president. I was in the drama club. I was in the National Honor Society. I started a nonprofit and I worked tirelessly to be the best at almost everything until I was admitted to Harvard, at which point I thought I'd made it. I had overcome this really hard thing and now my life would be relatively easy and straightforward. But at the end of my four years, just as I was set to graduate and officially grow up, she got sick again, this time with stage four breast cancer. I will never forget the feeling of shock, instability, and uncertainty that arrived with that diagnosis, a diagnosis that I immediately knew was a death sentence. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know that all of these complicated feelings I had before my mom even died were grief. 
And even if I had known what they were, I still didn't want to deal with them. And that moment, I committed to doing what I do best, work my butt off. I wanted to do everything in my power to ensure that my mother lived and died on her terms and that my family was as prepared as possible to lose her. I worked full-time on Wall Street. I ran a breast cancer charity on the side. And in my free time, I quite literally became the CEO of my mother's death, complete with a three-pronged strategy, spreadsheets, and friends who I delegated tasks to as though they were my employees. I did everything I could to prepare her and myself for her passing. And I thought, I really believed that because I was prepared, I would be just fine. Certainly not happy, but I would be okay. And then it happened. And on February 28, 2008, at exactly 5.37 p.m., I learned the hard way that there is no adequate preparation for death. There isn't a book you can read or someone you can talk to or honestly much of anything you can do to truly prepare yourself to lose someone you love. Someone you consider one of yours, your mother, your husband, your best friend, or heaven forbid, your child. When my mom died, my life as I knew it ended. I was no longer the same person, but no one told me that. And because no one told me that, I struggled. I battled anxiety and depression. I didn't sleep. I lost 25 pounds because I couldn't eat. And every morning for months, I had debilitating panic attacks in the basement of the investment bank where I worked. It was awful. Then one day, as I stood on the subway platform for the downtown six train Manhattan, on my way to work, embracing for my daily panic attack, I looked down at the tracks and I thought to myself, I now understand how people come to die by suicide. The emotional pain was so pervasive, so searing, that for a moment, the idea of ending my life became something I could actually wrap my mind around. A potential solution, a way out from all of this pain. But as quickly as I considered the idea, I realized that wasn't how my story was meant to end. And I committed to finding a way, to taking tentative steps forward, to building a new life without my mother. And that's what I've done. I wrote my book, Grief is Love, in an attempt to uncover exactly how one goes from the intensely painful experience of losing someone they love to building a life that is joyful and still honors that loss. And what I've come to realize is that everything in my book isn't actually about grief, but about hope. So that's what we're going to focus on today. 
There are four principles of hope found throughout the Bible that I'd like to discuss. Generally, I think we tend to think of hope in very positive, cheerful, lighthearted terms. Hope is something you think about when you watch a romantic comedy or binge a few Hallmark movies at Christmas. You don't generally think about hope when you think about grief. But living with loss requires a deep and sustained commitment to hope. A commitment to holding space in your heart for something that has not yet been realized. So what does the Bible say about hope? Did you know that hope is mentioned 129 times in the Bible? As I considered my own commitment to hope, I realized so much of it is based on how hope is described in the Bible. The first, and I think one of the most important elements of hope, is patience. Hope requires patience. Hope requires patience. According to Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, two verses I turn to when I am feeling my least hopeful. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. No one has ever described me as patient, and I don't think they ever will. I am the quintessential get-it-done type A personality. I really, really struggled with this notion of patience after my mother died. All I wanted was to be rid of the pain, the disorientation, the anxiety that consumed me. The idea of being patient when you are grieving and in pain can feel not only impossible, but also insulting. And I get it. But unfortunately, healing takes time. If you break your leg today, would you expect to be able to walk around normally tomorrow? Or would you expect to get a cast, some crutches, and then in six or eight weeks, head to physical therapy and slowly regain your strength? I find it is often so much easier to conceptualize emotional healing when we compare it to physical healing. The time that it takes to recover from physical wounds is so much easier to understand, but can we give ourselves the same patience and grace when it comes to our emotional wounds too? According to the Bible, we have to. Hope requires patience. And you know what else it requires? Honesty. When my mother was dying, I was so consumed with caring for her, working full time, and when I could, going out with my friends and trying to act like a normal 20-something, that I often failed to practically care for myself. By the time she passed away, I hadn't been to the doctors in about two years. After she died, I learned that likely 
as a result of the stress and trauma experienced while caring for my mother and watching her die. Somewhere along the way, I lost my ability to become a mother myself. I was diagnosed with a rare health condition and became an infertile, single, 28-year-old just a few days before my dead mother's birthday. I was something beyond devastated. I had always planned to have children of my own, and now I found myself all alone in the world, trying to grapple with the realization that a future I was counting on would no longer come to pass, and I was enraged. I was so mad at God. How dare he? And I told him the truth. Hadn't he already taken enough from me already? I lost my mom, and now I also lost my ability to conceive a child of my own. I mean, was he for real? It took me a minute, but after some time, I ultimately made my way back to my faith and resolved my anger. But I don't think I could have gotten there without first being honest about it. And through that process, I've come to realize that you can't be hopeful if you aren't being honest. Hope requires honesty. Hope requires honesty. There is no fake it till you make it when it comes to healing from grief and loss. You have to give yourself permission to feel whatever comes up, no matter how inappropriate it may seem. God can handle your truth. He reminds us of this throughout the Bible, but this verse in Lamentations, an entire book in the Bible about mourning, by the way, really speaks to me personally. Arise, cry out in the night. In the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. If you're grieving and you're mad at God, it's okay. He can handle it. He knows you. Was anyone else forced to memorize scriptures as a child? In my case, it was Psalm 23. I would get candies or cookies or sometimes both, each time I memorized another verse. At the time, I thought it was all a real pain in the butt. I would have very much preferred to just eat the cookies and candy and watch cartoons, but I was also a show-off as a kid. So I memorized it at age six, and it stuck. And only when I was asked to give this sermon did I identify the connection between Psalm 23 and hope. When you lose someone you love, the last thing you want to be told is you have to do work in order to heal. You just want someone to take away your pain. But ultimately, hope requires work. Psalm 23 reminds us of this. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. I want to emphasize two things about this sentence. The first is the word walk. No one is being carried or simply swept away to a better place. The psalmist 
is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, propelled forward by faith for sure, but also by action. He or she is the one doing the walking, trusting that with each tentative step forward, God will protect them from the shadow of death. The second word I want you to focus on is shadow. A few weeks ago, I found myself in conversation with a rabbi. This man has written multiple books about grief. He's presided over thousands of funerals and actually recently lost his own father. I asked him, what does he tell people about grief? How does he assure folks when they're looking for assurance that they aren't actually all alone in their pain? And he mentioned the 23rd Psalm and he talked to me about the word shadow. He said, we have to remember two things about shadows. One, they are evidence of light and the light is where God and his love exists. The second thing he reminded me of is that shadows are impermanent. So when we're going through these hard times, we need to remind ourselves that we're never actually alone. God is always there. And we also have to remember that this pain, that depth of pain, it isn't permanent. It isn't forever. Grief may be with us always, but it isn't always going to overwhelm us. And when we are in pain, we have to do the work that healing requires because hope without action is hollow. So whether it's seeking counseling or asking a friend to watch your kids so you can go have a good cry for a few hours or setting aside some extra time for prayer, I know it isn't easy, but please do the work that healing requires. And that brings me to my final point about hope. Hope requires trust. Hope requires trust. After working through the grief of infertility on my own, I met a guy, fell in love, got a dog, and then because we got a dog, we had to get married. Three years into our marriage, after enduring countless treatments for infertility, multiple egg donors, plenty of disappointments, doctor's appointments, dozens, if not hundreds of shots, and more money than I care to admit, we finally got pregnant. We were so thrilled until we got a call informing us that while we had briefly been pregnant, we weren't anymore. My husband openly grieved while I drove myself to Walgreens to get my own pregnancy tests, confident that the doctor had mixed up my blood test results with someone else's. I even said a quick prayer for that poor woman who was no longer pregnant while in the checkout line at Walgreens. Of course, the test results were right. I was not pregnant and I was devastated. A few days later, as the hormones wore off, I found myself in unspeakable pain. On the floor of our bathroom, 
literally watching the hope I held for this future child spill out of me. I have never felt more like a failure in my life than I did in the days, weeks, and months following our pregnancy loss. After all of these years, hoping and planning and taking every action possible to become parents, we were left with nothing. And to top it all off, as a result of my underlying condition, I was also very physically sick. And even though I was still in so much mental and physical pain, I remained consumed by the idea of having a child. I drove myself and Matt crazy, doing research and seeing specialists and more specialists and reviewing medical studies to try and figure out if there was any way I could get pregnant. Then one day, after a particularly grueling and painful physical exam, I said, no more. I knew that I couldn't keep doing that to myself. So no more specialists, no more fertility treatments, no more attempts at pregnancy for me ever again. I still believed I was meant to be a mom. I could feel that child in my bones. But I also knew that pregnancy was no longer for me. And that was when I was forced to learn the hard way that hope requires trust. Being hopeful when you're grieving is hard. It requires that even if we don't know what's next or what the plan is, or what the path forward might look like, it forces us to trust that somehow our faith and our work and our commitment to healing ourselves as we learn to live with loss will all somehow pay off. It forces us to acknowledge that we aren't actually as powerful as we think we are, and that it is okay that we don't have all the answers. Choosing hope means committing to trusting that God is that powerful and that he knows how to get from A to B even when we can't find a way ourselves. He reminds us of this throughout the Bible. But my personal favorite is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Choosing hope over and over and over again isn't easy. It is a disciplined practice. We are living through unprecedented and deeply challenging times. So even if you haven't lost someone you love, you may still find yourself experiencing grief as a result of the state of the world right now, or a job loss, or the end of a relationship. And while we all might wish for a world that's full of rainbows and sunshine, where every day feels like Christmas, fundamentally, the world is full of suffering and grief is a normal and ever-present part of our lives. So finding a way to cling to hope and trust God is essential. Psalm 89 verse 48 reminds us that death and suffering are simply a part of life. 
What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? So we have to cling to hope. 14 years after my mother's death, 11 years after my infertility diagnosis, and three years after our pregnancy loss, hope is the only thing I found that works. Ultimately, no matter what losses we experience, I have learned through grief that healing and joy are possible if we commit to hope. As you move through the world this week, what is one action you can take to support your hope, to facilitate healing for yourself or someone else? Take a moment to identify one concrete action, and then I want you to share it with someone else. Support and accountability have been a huge part of my grief journey. And we know that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Here at Grace, we believe in the power of community. So I want to encourage you to let someone else support you in your hope. Lastly, because I promised this would be a fun and hopeful message, I want to introduce you to someone. This is my son, Bennett. Matt and I helped tightly to hope. And five years after we started on our journey to become parents, this little guy arrived right on time last August. When you choose hope, you also choose surrender. You surrender yourself to God's plans, which are always somehow so much better than anything you could have imagined yourself. This is what it looks like to live a full life in the midst of grief. You choose hope over and over and over again until you arrive at joy.